Josh. Hi, Sarah. And hi, listeners. And welcome to episode two of Descent Magazine's new Belabored podcast. This episode features our interview with BBC correspondent Paul Mason. But before we dig into the Paul Masonry, as every week, as longtime listeners will remember, we start with a rundown of the week in labor. So one story that I've been following this week is the end of the lockout at American Crystal Sugar, a sugar beet cooperative in Minnesota and the Dakotas. The first thing to establish anytime we talk about lockouts for our listeners who are not labor obsessives is that lockouts are not strikes, that lockouts are when bosses deny workers the chance to come to work in order to bleed the workers until they give up the union or give up union benefits. What's happened at American Crystal Sugar is a classic example of this. The company came in insisting on takeaways on health insurance, on people's job security. And this week we learned that the company won some of the concessions it's been demanding. These workers were locked out for 20 months. They used a range of the comprehensive campaign tactics that unions are increasingly turning to, things like trying to get political pressure on the company, going after the company's bank, trying to discourage other workers from coming in and doing their jobs. And while we don't know the details of that contract, we know that it was narrowly ratified by the workers and that according to local media, management was successful in breaking the standard that workers had won there over several years. That what was agreed to according to local media again was similar to what the company proposed low 20 months ago in terms of taking away basic health insurance and job security protections that workers there had won. And so what we see here is how increasingly the fight just to keep benefits that you have looks more and more like the nasty fights we associate with what happens when non-union workers try to win a union for the first time. So cheerful. Um, We have... Always. So I have been following, um, I've been living in New York for about four years now, and um, we just got a minimum wage increase here. Um, It was supposed to be something like $8.75, and then President Obama came out and suggested $9 an hour for a nationwide uh, minimum wage increase. And so New York Democrat... Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo decided that he didn't want to look more stingy than the president. Um, And so we got this deal to raise the minimum wage. It's going to take three years. It'll first raise to $8 an hour, then $8.50, then to $9 an hour. And there's this weird little um, caveat in this bill that businesses that hire workers under the age of 19, so like 16 to 19-year-olds, Um, We'll get a tax break that will offset the cost of paying those workers more money. This is going to be something like a 20 to 40 million dollar subsidy for businesses, largely big businesses like Walmart, which a few of the unions who had been involved in this negotiation pointed out this week. Walmart has put some $400,000 into New York's Republican Party, um, and the unions are saying that that might have something to do with the fact that they're getting a massive subsidy along with other companies that hire young workers and pay the minimum wage like the fast food restaurants we were talking about last week. Um, so once again, this is coming up in the context of another fight here in New York that um, we may be watching to some degree, a fight over publicly funded elections. It's Walmart's world and we're just living in it. 
Another story we're watching this week, I wrote Wednesday morning about Working America, a three million member organization affiliated with the AFL-CIO started just a decade ago, which has been attempting over these past 10 years to mobilize particularly white working class workers who are not in unions around politics, around pro-labor candidates, pushing pro-labor policies like paid sick leave or stopping liquor store privatization. And I profiled this organization's work in the nation in the fall. What we learned this week is that Working America plans to expand out to 50 states and to go into the workplace, that they will set up a website and start turning some of their organization towards pushing these workers who've signed up to be part of an organization that tries to leverage some kind of political power for non-union workers into the workplace, into fights with the boss. What we don't know, what we'll have to see is how well that organization translates, how deep some of those ties turn out to be, and in particular, what happens, given that Working America in part is a response to the incredible difficulty of winning a union as a non-union worker in the United States, given it's a response in part to how effective retaliation is in discouraging workers from collective bargaining, what is going to happen if organizers are able to get these workers in the workplace to pick fights that organizers and Richard Trumka explicitly are hoping will lay the groundwork in some case for unionization, what happens if employers come down like a hammer on these workers, and how effectively will Working America and its allies in organized labor be able to respond? It'll be a good question. Um, so the fashion police are on strike. Um, well, not really. The fashion police is a TV show that I've never actually seen, but it's apparently on E! I'm sure some of you have seen it. And the writers behind the show are on strike this week. Um, they are calling for health benefits, pension benefits, the usual things that TV writers and movie writers who were organized with the Writers Guild get. But this is part of a bigger campaign that I've covered a bit to get the writers behind reality TV and these nonfiction shows organized. Because one of the reasons that there's so much reality TV on your TV is because the people who make it make a lot less money than the people who are starring in these, you know, fancy dramas with expensive stars like Scandal and I don't really know anything else because I don't own a television. This is a confession. So the writers here on strike, um, this follows union votes at companies that subcontract workers for reality and nonfiction TV programs, some of which after a couple of years after their union votes still don't have a contract. So this is an escalation, certainly, going on strike and saying that they won't go back in until they get their contract. Keep us posted. The big news this week, or, well, there would have been the big news if there wasn't a bombing at the Boston Marathon, um, was supposed to be the dropping of the Senate immigration bill. Because we all know that a gang of eight white men should, or and Mark, seven white men and Marco Rubio, should get to decide immigration policy for the entire country. But nevertheless, one of the things that we were watching for in that bill was the status of guest workers. And Josh had a big article recently in Dissent magazine about guest workers who had gone on strike. So, Josh, I'm going to ask you this question. What is the role of guest workers in the immigration bill that we will, who knows if we'll see it pass or not? 
So in talking to some of the experts and advocates who've been wrangling with this bill, the 17-page the outline, the 800-some-page text, as always, choose your cliche of choice. There's good news and bad news. We see some form of the W visa compromise that was worked out by the AFL-CIO and the Chamber of Commerce. For those who haven't followed the backstory here, the Gang of Eight turned to the AFL-CIO on behalf of labor, Chamber of Commerce on behalf of business, and essentially said, you guys work out something you can both live with, and we'll <laughs> slip it into our bill on guest workers. What is good about the W visa compromise that now exists in the bill is that it does offer a guest worker program that has greater protections for workers to speak up and organize without getting deported, or at least with the opportunity to get the chance to stay in the country and get protections, with a greater opportunity for companies to be fined when they are aggressively cracking down on the rights of those workers, and with some version of visa portability. Now, what's visa portability? It's the chance if you come here to work for one boss to leave and go to work for another boss. Part of what we've seen and part of what the workers in my dissent feature speak to, these workers who were subjected to forced labor, what you might know as slavery, said over and over in their own experience in going out and organizing other guest workers, the consistent message from the boss was, I brought you here, I control your visa, I control your ability to ever come back to the country, to ever work again in the United States, and so you have to do whatever I tell you to do. That's why it's important that workers be able to leave one employer and go to the other. Now, the downsides in this W visa compromise, the compromise that existed between the AFL-CIO and the chamber already had its limits. What's in the bill is missing some of the good things from that compromise. Shockingly. So while the idea of visa portability is still there, what this bill protects is a worker's right to leave one employer and go fill one of the other existing W visa slots somewhere else. So this creates something of a musical chairs scenario where unless one of the other workers has quit, died, left the country during the space of their time at work, it's not clear how portable these visas really will be. A larger issue, though, is that the W visa is only a small fraction of the guest worker workforce under the system envisioned in this bill. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so the H-2B visa, for example, which has had some of the most rampant abuses, <coughs> which covers so-called low-skilled or so-called unskilled labor, right. is expected to expand significantly under this bill. And while there are some better protections across the board, for example, reversing a Supreme Court decision saying that immigrant workers can never win back pay for union busting, much of the abuse has the potential to continue if the H-2B system remains much the way it is and gets bigger. And so that's something that advocates will be going to the mat over, and we can be sure that as that happens, Republicans will also be demanding an even more lenient system for employers and even more restrictions on workers. Right. So what happens with the guest workers, right, is basically you get a workforce that is here at the whim of the employer. They have very little opportunity to 
even ask for help. And what's been really surprising to me is that despite all of these problems, we've been seeing guest workers successfully organizing. They haven't, um, in many cases, gotten a union vote. They haven't won everything they've been asking for, but they have been definitely stirring up some trouble for the bosses. That's right. In central Pennsylvania, a couple years ago, we saw workers at Hershey's Chocolate, guest workers occupy their factory and go out on strike over alleged illegal abuses. We saw these workers I wrote about at Descent, the CJ's Seafood Workers, who were working for a Walmart supplier, right. who allege that their boss told them, if you get me in trouble, I will have your families assaulted back in Mexico. Eight of these workers went out on strike and by doing so forced Walmart to suspend the company, got a meeting with Walmart, a meeting at which, according to the workers, Walmart said it planned to fight human trafficking with an iPhone app. Oh, right. Yes, because that'll do it. And they brought national attention to the particular vulnerability of guest workers and may have endangered the ability, at least of one bad boss, to continue to make money off of them. We saw, over the past few months, guest workers for McDonald's at one franchisee, again in central Pennsylvania. What is it with central Pennsylvania, man? It makes you wonder. Well, (laughs) the scary thing to ask, though, is how widespread are these conditions in places where whatever is in the water in central Pennsylvania isn't there, and the workers don't take this arguably crazy move, this unbelievably risky action of going out on strike against their boss. What we are seeing with these guest workers is that organizing is still possible, that building some kind of leverage is still possible. This is another form of what I've called alt-labor, where workers are organizing outside of the limits of labor law, outside of many of the protections of labor law, and turning to a whole combination of industrial activism like strikes, political pressure, in the case of the CJ's workers' political pressure in the U.S. and in Mexico, consumer pressure, media campaigns, hunger strikes, and an attempt to force some kind of change, not just from the manager who threatened to beat them with shovels, but from the government and from the company at the top of the supply chain that's directing this. And it is very much worth paying attention to because guest work in some ways represents the direction that work is going in the United States of becoming more contingent, becoming more precarious, becoming less secure, and needless to say, overwhelmingly non-union. I mean, I wonder if one of the reasons that the guest worker campaigns have managed to get so much attention is that people don't know this is happening, right? That most people have no idea what a W visa or an H2, whatever number it is, visa, people would have no idea what these are. Um, and so when you find out that this guy has been keeping some student workers trapped in his basement and forcing them to work ridiculous hours, that that's shocking because people don't even know that that's what's happening. And yet you're saying that that's basically where we're all headed. The, Maybe not in the basement, but. The National Guest Worker Alliance argues in this piece, and I think for good reason, that Guest workers are a bellwether, that they suggest there is a reason that employers are willing to pay, in many cases, a premium to bring these workers to the United States, even when there are people available to work at minimum wage already in the country. And it's a premium that you pay in exchange for the chance to drive the conditions even lower. We saw this franchisee of McDonald's in central Pennsylvania 
having some workers work 25 hours in a row, allegedly, having people pay him to live in his basement, and so in some cases actually get paid zero dollars for the week. And whether these workers can find a way to have leverage tells us a lot about the potential for workers in the face of this creaky, craven labor law to extract some kind of justice. Well, on that cheery note... Um, this is we'll an ever-cheery podcast. This is We are very cheery. Um, we will definitely be following the progress of this immigration bill and what it does to guest workers and what it does to non-guest workers, to people who have already been living in this country and working here for years. But from there, we're going to segue into our interview with Paul Mason, the BBC's economics correspondent, author of a couple of books that are worth reading on labor, on austerity, on the global uprising against austerity. Um, Everybody should check out, actually, there's a second edition now, Why It's Still Kicking Off Everywhere, which looks at the global response to austerity policies. Um, And we spoke to Paul about Margaret Thatcher, um, about austerity in Europe, in the UK, and about the possibilities for a general strike in the UK. About the people who paid me, Macy's, aka modern day slavery. You know, two gallons of gas in this state equal one hour pay at minimum wage. We are talking just a few days after the death of former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, and obviously she had a huge impact on labor in the UK and in laying the groundwork for today's austerity policies. Um, could you share a few thoughts on that that impact and how that's shaping today's politics? Well, uh, the death of Margaret Thatcher is playing very big in the UK right now. I mean, it's dominating the news agenda, and it goes beyond um, mere obituaries for what even her opponents would admit was a quite giant political figure. Um, The debate is around what she did. Now, I think those of us who lived through it, um, and I did live through it, are very keen to stress that the number one priority for Margaret Thatcher was defeating the labour movement. And the power of organised labour in Europe and above all in the UK was very strong in the 1970s. Thatcher assumed that once organised labour was defeated... Lots of other things could be done. The restructuring of UK society, business, um, politics even. um, And ultimately, the restructuring of the Labour Party as a pro-neoliberal party. All of these things followed from the defeat of the trade unions. So she prioritised defeating the trade unions, executed a strategy very carefully um, and and almost like sort of incrementally. Um, And for me, and for those of us, I think, who lived through that time, that is what Thatcher's legacy was. It is the defeat of organised labour. And I think strategic defeat. We're not talking about um, the odd strike defeated. We're talking about a whole demographic of working class people who lived their lives through the labour movement, who had some ideals, saw those ideals, if not capable of being fully realised, then... um, the ideals sustained them. They sustained a, a political project. All of that went uh, with Thatcher, with the defeat of the miners, the printers, um, and ultimately then the collapse of union membership. So that is that is that is Thatcher's legacy. Um, for me, everything else flows from it. She wasn't a massive privatizer. She was a privatizer, but not a massive one. Um, she was not a uh, massive restructurer of British industry. All that came later. 
So that was the Thatcher project. Whatever you think about it, I as a public service broadcaster and journalist am obliged to be neutral about it. Given Thatcher's famous quote that there is no alternative, that, that there is no alternative to capitalism at this point, are there places in Europe where we see the the grounds for or openings that suggest some kind of alternative to neoliberalism or austerity? For me, the starting point of the book I've written is that the neoliberal era is over, that um, it, the whole last 20 years, or the 20 years in the run-up to the Lehman Brothers, turns out to have been built on a fault line, uh, and that fault line was um, globalisation of production, the downward pressure on wages in the West, leading to the stagnation of actual wages, so you know, where did demand come from? Where did growth come from? It turns out it came from credit, and much of it, therefore, was fictional. There's no going back to that model. And so if we then ask, well, what is the alternative to neoliberalism? That's where the contradiction lies. I mean, the future is waiting to be born, as it were, but it's not there. The, 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 the social movements in Southern Europe that have resisted austerity don't have uh, a coherent alternative. The Indignados, similar to Occupy Wall Street, have resisted, or resisted at the point of where the, of their highest influence, uh, having demands or having a government project. Likewise, <clears throat> much of the protest movement in, in Greece had no project for an alternative government, uh, although that is changing. I think we see the emergence of Syriza as a, as a very viable and quite you know, likely to win uh, any election that were called opposition. Um, then you have to start taking seriously what you know, real sort of almost left social democratic programs that do take you beyond neoliberalism. The social movements that we see springing up against austerity. How do you see the relationships between unions and other actors in those movements? Well, they've been troubled, but it, it, it depends. I think we have to take it case by case. Remember the sequence: the Indignado protests uh, beginning in May 2011 really began to set the agenda for a type of action. Um, so they held up a banner saying, don't wake the Greeks, they're sleeping. And the Greeks reacted by setting up a camp in Syntagma, in Syntagma Square. There were also camps and local assemblies set up all over Athens, and in fact all over the major cities of Greece. And then, of course, Occupy Wall Street takes place after that. So the sequence is, is, is Spain, Greece, everywhere else. But in each of the countries, the relationship between, between the occupation of space movements and the labour movement is different. So in Spain, you have a very strong uh, communist left. So they've got about, what is it, 10, 15, 20%, depending on where you are, of electoral support. The main union is communist, the CCOO. Many young people there have grown up in a kind of communist tradition. So the Indignados were much wider than that. And I think they obviously included every, what they include everywhere, which is anarchists and autonomists. But <clears throat> it's also fair to say that the Indignado protest drew in a lot of middle-class young people into a sort of verbally anti-capitalist uh, type of protest, but who didn't have a major labour movement orientation. That's very true in Spain. Now, in Greece it was different because the unions had been absolutely front and centre of resisting the austerity since it started. And the union movement there, there's a communist one, uh, a communist kind of allied union federation. But there are two big federations that have been traditionally allied to PASOK, the Social Democratic uh, Party. Um, now, those 
Union Federations remained very militant in their opposition to the austerity. But, I mean, I've stood on Syntagma Square so many times uh, and seen the following process. There's, at the front, um, the sort of protesters, <clears throat> whether it be anarchist, autonomist, the far-left, Syriza. They're there in their sort of... You, you, you can demographically identify them. You know, the clothing, the combat trousers for the, for the black... The black you know, the black balaclava, etc. Um, generally sort of dressed as sort of in a kind of sort of southern European hipster kind of manner. And um, and then the unions just march past them on the other side of the square, even as the riots going on. And the communist unions are armed literally with sticks that are like two inches thick, which are banner poles and crash helmets. And they link arms and there's some very beefy young men uh, at the front. And I'm talking not 10 people as in sort of, you know, the, the sort of far left version of this I'm talking hundreds of people thus attired and you know my uh, my colleague my Greek journalist colleague who was helping me one day said to, you know you know what those sticks are for they're to beat the anarchists they stop the anarchists coming anywhere near this contingent and that's true the only time I've ever seen them used was when they fought each other so that's the relationship there um, po- Portugal is again different because port- in Portugal I would say the traditional labour movement the, the, the left part, the socialist party in opposition now, the communists, the far left, which are, so there's this united parliamentary far left, which is the Trotskyists, Greens and communists. Um, they kind of, that is the movement in Portugal. There is a bit of a sort of Occupy style movement, but the movement itself is, is very Labour dominated. So, but the dynamic is the same everywhere, that <clears throat> they haven't, between them, uh, stopped a single thing. They haven't stopped a single measure of austerity, either by camping, either by rioting or one day general strikes, because all the governments throughout are committed to the austerity. Yeah. So you sort of uh, anticipated my next question there. But so, right, we've seen these mass mobilizations with with thousands more people than we saw in even the largest Occupy protest here. And yeah, they haven't stopped anything. Um and you, you mentioned that Syriza is, is looking like they could actually win an election, but what do you think will actually it will actually take to change the political direction? Well, it, the reason they can't stop anything is because the stakes are so high. <clears throat> the European Union and the IMF have created, it's, got, it's poker with a single hand. And it simply is, the, the moment you defy austerity, the bailout money stops, you can't fund your, your current borrowing as a country, you go bust. You probably have to leave the euro. That's the high-stakes game. It's been played out in Greece. So Syriza came within 2% of winning the election. So this is far-left party. I went to um, villages, remote villages in Greece that, that should have been conservative, where the farmers are sitting around at lunchtime, drinking their beer, smoking their cigarettes, you know, and, and you, you walk in and you say, who are you going to vote for? And every single one, Syriza, Syriza, Syriza. So why? There's no alternative. We have to vote for them. Okay, so the momentum they had, the role they were on in 2012, the second election in June was massive. But what I think happened is that <clears throat> it's not just the parliamentary right got its act together and unified everybody around this kind of crumbly and, and quite crisis-riven right-wing Centre Party New Democracy, it's that the population went, you know, almost literally shit. If we vote, if we put Syriza in power, we provoke a crisis that destroys our savings and we go out of the euro. And so the the population blinked at that moment. 
That's why, and it'll be the same in Greece, same in Spain, same in Portugal. If it, if it comes down to it, the European Union has created the game in a way that makes you have to leave the Euro and, and endure weeks, if not months, of social catastrophe, worse than what you're already enduring, in order to defy or oppose the austerity. So that's why. And I think until somebody comes up with a, a deal-breaking uh, tactic or strategy that alters that, that is the way it will go on. The only, as it were, break in the cycle comes if the Greek coalition falls. Because remember, all these, all these crises are linked. If Greece were to defy austerity and leave the euro, or before start of the euro, the rest of it would blow up. Um, and I think that the issue on which the Greek coalition could fall is not the economy. The fact is, is it is a tiny rump of a socialist party, a tiny Marxist party that's going to be destroyed next time it goes to the polls, and a big conservative party. And that conservative party is very, very itchy-fingered on repression. So very, very itchy-fingered on um, accusing Syriza of being terrorist, of accusing the far left, certainly, of being terrorist and treating anarchists as if they were terrorists. Now, some anarchists you know, famously robbed a bank and you know, they were beaten up in custody. But you know, the anarchists themselves have actually crossed various lines that anarchists in other countries haven't. But what political commentators, both the right and left, worry about in Greece is that that coalition oversteps itself. It can overstep itself on, on policing and, and repressive action to an extent that it could actually just fall. Then, Syriza. So I was also reading a piece this week in The Independent about the possibility of a general strike in the UK for the first time since, what, 1926 or something. Um, but would a 24-hour general strike have an impact? Um, what does this mean that they're even considering this for labor, for the government? The interesting thing in the British labor movement is that you've got this one union leader who leads the biggest of the manual unions, Len McCluskey. Um <clears throat> communist background, was, I think, at one point a member of the militant Tennessee, which was a Trotskyist group. So he, he's got the vocabulary of general strike and class struggle. And Len leads Unite uh, in a very political way. And I know they've been discussing, OK, well, what do we do? What could, you know, could, could a general strike roll back austerity? That is the discussion. And it's quite amazing because we were talking earlier about Thatcher. I mean, there was a one-day general strike against Thatcher very early on. I think it was 1980, uh, I think 1981 or two. And several million, I think, you know, possibly more than four or five million people took strike action on this particular day. Um, it didn't stop anything. Now, 30 years on, uh, we have a we have a shrunken labour movement, a labour movement in Britain very concentrated in the service industries, very concentrated in the public sector. So the strongest and most militant union is the Public and Commercial uh, Workers Union (PCS), and it's led again by an ex-Trotskyist, Mark Sorotka, um, and and it, it's got a very um, strong record of taking limited, focused strike action on its own issues. But if you add together the combined might of, you know, Unite, PCS, this public sector workers union, and one or two others, really, if one were in these discussions these union leaders have been having about the question of a general strike, one would want to know what their estimate is of what they could pull off if every single member came out 
because they could certainly shut down public services. You know, you wouldn't get your tax collected on that day. You wouldn't be able to take your driving test. Um, certain factories would shut down, big arms factories, where the union's still very strong. Would it shut down society in the way the 1926 general strike did? I think it's almost... I think given the what union density is, is extremely low now in, in the private sector in the UK, I think it's something, it's something like 17%. Well, you'd have to conclude, unless it went wildcat and became a sort of anarcho, wildcat, spontaneous thing, it'd be very difficult for them to pull anything off, let alone 1926, but anything on similar to what happened in the early 80s. So here in the United States, private sector union density is less than half of that. There's a great deal of soul-searching. There's a sense that maybe the vultures aren't just circling anymore. They're actually coming in for a landing for the labor movement in the United States. I wonder to what extent you see parallels or divergences between the decline of trade unionism in the U.S. as compared to in the U.K. or elsewhere in Europe? Look, I think what's happening worldwide <clears throat> is that trade unionism as we knew it is in decline. And I think that um, those people who kind of dream of uh, that <clears throat> one day it will just suddenly revive as it used to be, are just ignoring key demographic factors. In my book, what I say is that, look, you know, the terrain, or as said, the ecosystem that, that allowed and created strong labour movements that we've lived with, and we are living with, I think, in some way, the survival of, the terrain's gone. Um, the ecosystem has gone. The majority of the workforce was male. The majority of work, the workforce was manual. The majority of the workforce um, had grown up in a Keynesian economy, whether it's the USA, Spain, Portugal, whatever, UK. There was strong, what we call social capital. Now, we live in the exact opposite of that. And, and of course, fair play to those who keep unions going <clears throat> in workplaces that are primarily dominated by people who don't have any of these attributes, so, so it's a primary female, it's temporary, it's precarious, it is uh, white-collar. Um, and as the sociologist Richard Sennett has written, you know, it is a, a, a workforce with weak ties, so their ties are never going to be strong enough. Um, I myself am a trade union uh, rep at work. I spend all my time doing what we call individual case work. Nobody wants to, under the age of 30, probably, I, I mean, it, this goes up by one every year, you know, so it might be 40 soon, wants to join a union until, knock on the door, somebody has harassed me. Somebody hasn't given me my pay rights. Uh, somebody has kind of uh, pissed me off. That's the word that I, I bet every union rep listening to this will nod when I say this. That is the work of a union rep. Whereas I can remember... You know, my dad was a, a union guy, and I, I've grown up around union people. That wasn't what unions were primarily oriented to. They were oriented to collective action. You put your hand up and you take action. Now, I think that just tells us that the, 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 the ecosystem has changed. Is it, what can you do? Can you sit, do you sit around mourning it? If you're somebody who's attached to this, um, I try, you know, as a journalist, I'm reporting it and, and, and trying to study it as a, as a you know, social historian. I think what you have to do is understand it. You have to understand the new terrain. And that out of a new terrain of work, my argument is that the indignado, the, the Occupy-type people, the, the horizontalist protest movements are l the lawful product of this 
work with weak ties that Senate writes about. Um, and we just, those of you who are involved in activism have to kind of live with that. Those of us who study it have to recognise it. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I wrote a book in the mid-2000s called Live Working or Die Fighting, which looked at the rise of labour movements in the global south. And at that time, you know, even then, what I was careful to say is, don't think that this is going to escape the dynamic I'm talking about. Because even the guys in the unions, the clandestine unions in the Chinese factories, are by night a dwarf in World of Warcraft. You know, are on the internet and they're obsessed with other stuff. Their, their main, they live multiple lives with multiple selves and they are not immune from all these, you know, uh, horizontal and labile uh, pressures that create a new kind of workforce that I think is just going to organise in a different way. How you gonna live your life when your ass won't fight? Don't say what you don't like if you just let shit pass back. Don't say that you are radical if you ain't about that life. Rebel against them if they try to take your rights. But stay at home and join okay but women in rights. Well, our one-week streak of Star Trek references and interviews is sadly broken, but great to talk to Paul otherwise. As we close, our longtime second-week listeners will know that this is where we say, "Arg!" I wish I had written that article this week. Sarah, what did you read over the past week that filled you with jealousy? <laughs> well, I've been jealous of Matt Taibbi for a long time, um, mostly because he gets to do things like call the guys at Goldman Sachs vampire squids. Um, but this week, Matt Taibbi had a piece up about um, some hedge fund managers. One particular hedge fund, hedge fund manager named Dan Loeb who manages money for some pension funds, um, which, you know, already hedge fund managers are, well, I'm going to tell you to go read what Matt Taibbi calls them. But this particular guy is also on the board of an organization called Students First New York. And Students First is one of those wonderful organizations that basically spends its time lobbying against the rights of teachers to have unions and to have those defined benefit pensions, the funds of which this man is asking those same unions to allow him to manage for them. It's a piece worth reading, as Taibi usually is, on what actually goes on on Wall Street and where these people who are making ridiculous amounts of money are actually making it. Um, spoiler alert, they're making it off of the pension funds, the savings of working people. So as we've suggested, the immigration debate is something we're going to continue to follow. There will be compromises upon compromises. The W visa that I mentioned was noteworthy in part because it offered guest workers the chance to petition to have permanent status in the U.S. and thus, arguably, the advocate suggested, no longer to be guest workers in some sense. That is now out of the current bill. And so all of us are going to find ourselves asking, where do you draw the red line? At what point does a bill become acceptable? At what point is it something we can live with? And what is worth trading for what? And I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast to read four voices on that question that the nation assembled in a piece over the past week. This piece turns to Sara Iorribe, Kika Matos, Janice Fine, and Ai-jen Poo, all vital voices in this debate, discussing issues from whether there can be such a thing as a progressive guest worker program mm -hmm. to 
who it is justifiable to leave out of the opportunity for a pathway to citizenship to what a robust set of worker protections under immigration law should look like. A must read this week, next week, and over the next few months as we agonize over what bill we can accept and whether it's something that will go forward. Well, that concludes us for this week. Uh, We invite you to share your stories with us, um, tell us what you thought of this week's, rate us on iTunes, tweet at us using the hashtag belabored, and Josh, we'll see you next week. That we will. Have a great week.